Let's pray. Father, it is impossible for us to genuinely fathom your grandeur and your supremacy and your sovereignty and your greatness and your infinite nature with our finite minds. And so we depend solely on your spirit to reveal to us who you are and what you're like so that we can grasp whatever you're willing to offer us and worship you for who you are. We need humility to understand you, so humble us before your word and pray that your spirit would do his work to exalt Christ and glorify you. We trust you in this, and we ask for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. <clears throat> so, I'm going to give you a quick disclaimer. It's a disclaimer I've given many times before. When discussing with you from Scripture things that I would say are difficult truths, uh, I'd like to prepare you for them. And, and uh, if you've been here a long time, this isn't new to you. If you're new, it might be new to you or if you're relatively new. And so I want to shepherd you well by just kind of preparing you for this because if you look at this text today, what you see is uh, something that on the surface seems very easy and palatable to understand, but there's a deeper reality underneath it that we must understand in order for us to know how to use this text in our lives. And so what I'm going to do today is dig underneath this truth and see what foundation lies underneath it. That foundation is what is going to be preached. And <clears throat> I think because we, because churches, you know, what, an hour and a half or whatever, we don't have time to really explore the fullness of these concepts. And so naturally, you may walk away with more questions than answers. And that's, I think that's a good thing. I think if you walk away from a sermon going, I got questions, number one, that means that you're listening. <laughs> number two, it means that, you know, you're thinking about the text. You're thinking about the verse. You're thinking about the word of God. You're contemplating the nature of God. And you're trying to put it into a framework that you can understand so that you know how to honor God with your life. That's a good venture to take. So, so if there's confusion or frustration or even questions about these doctrines, don't consider that a bad thing. Think of that as a good thing. That's what the church body is for. That's why we have life groups. That's why we have women's Bible study and men's Bible study and church on Sunday morning. And we have prayer services together. This is why we do life together. Because you don't just listen to one sermon and go, I don't agree, checking out. You go, I got questions, and we as a church live life together week by week and day by day, thinking about these questions, discussing these questions, asking these questions, finding answers together, opening God's word, and, and seeing what his word says about the questions we have. And the reality is the doctrine of God's sovereignty, which we will cover today, 
And what you'll get today is a sliver of a much bigger doctrinal idea. You're not going to understand the fullness of God's sovereignty in one message. And so, as we look at this text and discuss and discover what's underneath it, I want you to listen with open ears. I pray that the Spirit would consume you, give you confidence, trust, and faith in the Word of God, and that if you've got more questions, which would make perfect sense, that, we, that, that you commit to a long-term life in this church where those questions get answers. Okay, and that takes time, that takes, it could take weeks, months, or years of doing life with the church to discover the infinite nature of God, which, if we're all honest with each other, we'll never fully understand anyway. If he's infinite and we are finite, we'll always, always be working towards understanding God better. So I just give you that disclaimer, and, and as we look at Colossians 3, 9 through 10, on the surface, it's a pretty basic concept. It's this, this idea that I think most Christians can easily grasp. Paul says, put off the old self and put on the new self. Except it's not a command. He's not telling you to put off the old self. He's not telling you to put on the new self. What it is, is it's actually a reason. It's a defense. This is his why. This is the reason for why we are able to actually fulfill the commands that are in verse 5. The, the, the one command in verse 5, and the command in verse 5 is this. Put these sins to death. If you look at verse 5, it says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he gives a list of sins. So these sins are the sins listed in verse 5 and verse 8. And they are sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. Paul says, put those to death. So in order to follow that command to put those to death, there's, there's a reason why we're able to do that, and it's because we put off the old self and put on the new self. So the list in verse 5 mostly concerns sexual sin, and the list in verse 8 mostly concerns the use of our tongue or speech. So as Paul has like built this argument for putting sin to death, the reason we can fulfill that command is because we are no longer our old selves. Instead, we are the new self, and our new self is Christ in us. So why does Paul give us this reasoning? Why, why not just say, hey, here's a list of sins. Now I'll put them to death. Why does he follow that up with, and here's why you're able to put them to death? Because reason matters. Motivations matter. Purpose matters. How many times have you asked a question to somebody, they tell you to do something, they're asked to do something, your question is, why? Don't you want to know, why am I doing what I'm doing? My children ask that all the time. Do the dishes. Why? <laughs> because I said so. That's why. No, because kids want to know why. They want understanding. They want to grasp a concept. And it's not, it doesn't change. We become adults. We want to know why. So Paul's given us the why. And what Paul does in verses 9 and 10 is he clarifies for us the reason why we are able to put these sins to death and our reason for putting these sins to death is fully and completely dependent on God sovereignly working in our justification. Okay, so what's justification? Justification is that moment 
that we would call salvation. That'd be that moment that we say, that's when I got saved, right? It's that moment when we uh, are forgiven by God for our sins. So God takes our sin and forgives us and gives to us the righteousness of Christ. That's the moment we're justified. Then what begins after justification is a lifelong process we call sanctification, which is growing in our faith, growing, uh, practicing, and living out that justified life. And then the end is glorification, when Christ returns and glorifies uh, us. So, putting these sins to death is totally dependent on God sovereignly working in our justification and then also sovereignly working through our sanctification. So one, we need to understand God, God's sovereignty in order to magnify his glory in our obedience. And two, we need to understand his sovereignty before we can fully appreciate and understand our human responsibility to obey and to kill sin in our lives. So we get to verse 9, the second half of verse 9. Paul just finished a list of sins. They were anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. Then he says, Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul tells us that two things have happened to us. One, you have put off the old self. And two, you have put on the new self. So though verse 9 says you have done this, you see that in verse 9 it says you have put off. And that word you is then uh, implied in verse 10. So you have put off and you have put on. And though our English translation says you have done this, the original Greek does not say you have. The original Greek says, having put off the old man with the practices of him and having put on the new man. So there are only really two ways, maybe three, to consider the removal of the old self and the putting on of the new self. Either we did it or God did it. Or I guess a third option is maybe we both did it, like God provided the old God provided the removal of the old self and God provides the opportunity for the new self we just have to take it so it's like God offers it and then we take it I have a problem with that in scripture though There are just too many verses in scripture that say things like this John 3:27 A person This is Jesus speaking. A person cannot, or is it John the Baptist? It might be John the Baptist. Either way, it's scripture. It doesn't matter who said it. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Okay, so clearly there is nothing we can receive unless God sovereignly ordains that we receive it. Right? A person cannot receive even one thing. Okay, so let's list one thing. How about um, breath? Your next breath, you will only breathe 
If this verse is true, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. If you breathe your next breath, that is a gift from God from heaven. James says all good things come from God above. All good gifts come from God above. Your next breath, you only receive because God offers it to you, because he grants it to you, because he gives it to you. So clearly there's nothing that we can receive unless God sovereignly ordains that we receive it. However, it does say that we receive it. Right? So, so we must have some role because we're, we're practicing this action of reception. Right? If someone gives you a gift, you take that gift and you receive it. If someone offers you a gift and you swat it out of their hand and say, I don't want your garbage gift, that's not receiving. Right? And we kind of conceive of the idea of salvation being the same way. Like God's got this box and inside of it is Jesus and salvation and he offers it and you just got to take it or not take it. And we can slap it away or we can receive it. And so we got this idea of reception where we take salvation. So it looks like we've got this role of participation. But John 1, 12 through 13 tells us otherwise because he uses the word receive as well. And he says, John says of Jesus, he's talking about people getting saved. He says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now at that point, that text looks like salvation's offered, we just have to take it. And I'm not going to deny the reality that that's how you experience salvation as a choice, and we'll get to that in a minute. But, but what this scripture looks like now, but to all who did receive him or believed in his name. So that's two actions that we're doing, receiving and believing. And if we do that, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, this sounds a lot like John 3, 27 that we just read. God offers it and we receive it. We're both participating in the salvation. However, John 1, 13 ends like this. So I'll read the whole thing. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And what John says is your reception of the gospel is not an activity that is caused by you or your will, or your flesh, or your blood, but by God. So John removes the human will from this reception of the gospel and completely credits God for our salvation. So in Colossians 3, 9, what seems like our activity is actually the complete work of God to overcome our will, and our will is set against God. Our will is not for God. Our will in the flesh does not desire God, and we'll get to that too in a second. So when we are justified, the flesh is conquered, okay? That's our old self, and that's, why Paul, that's what Paul means when he says, put off the old self, because in your justification, the old self has been killed, buried. The flesh has been conquered. And then the Spirit gives us life and makes us a new creation or a new man. That's the new self. That's Christ in us. And so we are, on our own, incapable of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. Because John 6, 63 says, this is Jesus talking, it is the Spirit who gives life. Flesh is of no help at all. 
It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So prior to being justified, Ephesians 1, 1 through 3, says, not Ephesians 1, 1 through 3, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's who we are if we're not justified. So how do we get life? Well, Jesus just said in John 6, 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. Your flesh is no, of no help at all. So Paul says that you were, Ephesians 2, 1, and you were dead, dead, dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. Let me paint a picture for you. If you're not saved, you're not, so, so imagine you're, there's a swimming pool. Okay, there's a swimming pool. And we tend to think of not being saved is like you're in the pool and you're drowning and you're splashing and you're like, someone save me. And Jesus goes, I can save you. And he pulls you out. But that's not the picture that scripture paints for you. The picture that scripture paints is there's a pool. And at the bottom of the deep end is you. And you're dead. And you've been dead for a very long time. And your flesh is rotting. And your corpse is decaying. I'm sorry if this is too graphic. <laughs> but you have been dead for years. I mean, how long were you dead without Christ before you believed? Maybe you were six. Maybe you were 16. Maybe you were 60. Either way, that's a lot of years to decay. And we're at the bottom of the pool, dead, dead, dead. No life in us. And when we look at Ezekiel 37, which... And I'm going to read Ezekiel 36 for you in a little bit. But in Ezekiel 37 is the picture of the dry bones. And it comes right after a text where God says, I cause life. Amen. And then he shows the picture of causing life by taking bones. Bones. Which are what? Decayed. This is flesh is rotted off. All that's left are bones and he brings those dry bones to life and he knits together the sinews and the muscles and everything and he creates life from years of decayed death. Did those bones go, oh, God, bring me to life? No. When you're dead at the bottom of the pool and your body is decaying, are you saying, and, and then someone walks up to the edge of the pool and they go, hey, you're dead. You need Jesus. What happens? Nothing. Because that person's dead. They can't hear you and you think, well, that's physical death. Spiritual death is, you know, physical death is way more real than spiritual death. No, it's not. Spiritual death is far more realistic than your physical death. We have no concept of reality on this earth. Reality in our eternal life is far more tangible and real and practical and awesome than this physical life. And so this idea that we can hear the gospel and then in our, in our dead sinful nature choose Jesus is impossible. It's impossible. 
So something else must happen in order for the dead body at the bottom of the pool or the dry bones to come to life. And Jesus says, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help of all, no help at all. Why? Because the flesh is dead. Being spiritually dead makes us incapable of producing our own spiritual life or choosing Christ in our sinful flesh. We can't. Romans 3, 10 through 12, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. No one does good. Not even one. You're not an exception. I'm not an exception. Nobody loves God without Christ. You cannot love God, you cannot choose God, you cannot choose Christ unless the Spirit gives you life. Meaning, it must be the Spirit who puts off the old self and puts on the new self in us. And along with John 6.63, which is the verse I just read, that the Spirit gives life, the flesh is no help at all, two verses later, Jesus says, no one... No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. In John John 3, 27, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he's telling Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, you have to be what? (laughs) Like, born again? What am I going to like, enter the womb again? It doesn't make sense, Jesus. And Jesus says to him, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So we just saw that in the, other, in the other text. We're talking about breath. Jesus is talking about being born again. He's talking about eternal life. He's saying no one can receive even one thing unless God is given to him from heaven. And he's speaking specifically about that one thing being salvation. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, Jesus said, No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. Well, that kind of leaves us out. That's kind of sad. Like, well, good for you and the Father. What about us? And he goes, no one knows the Father except the Son. And that word and is nothing but grace. Because that period should come right after Son. Instead, by the grace of God, he says, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So it is God's work to cause our salvation, and 1 Corinthians 12, 3 verifies that it is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who puts, puts, not asks, not suggests, now he doesn't beat around the bush, he puts life into us. Because 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except In the Holy Spirit. So the dead body and the dry bones can't say, Yes, I believe in the gospel. I believe in Jesus Christ. I receive the gospel because though I'm dead, now I'm alive. You can't say that. You can't rise up out of the water. The dry bones can't come to life. You can't choose Jesus Christ unless the Holy Spirit first goes into the water, goes into the depths, imputes life into your heart and regenerates your heart and your mind and gives you life because you are chosen and elect. That's Ephesians 1, 
verses 4 and 5, in addition to many other verses that I'll spare you from right now. But the Spirit does that work for God's elect and chosen and puts life into them. And in that life that the Spirit causes, we come to life. We get out of the water, the dry bones rise from the valley, and they say, Jesus is Lord. And that's how we respond to the gospel. Because faith is not something you produce on your own ever. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, it is a gift of God. Which means that the Spirit must first, first, first regenerate our hearts before we can even recognize our sinfulness. Because you can only recognize your sinfulness if you come to life from sin. If you're dead in your sin, you don't know the depths of your sin or the reality of your sin or the need for Christ. So to recognize your sinfulness, you have to have the Spirit who makes you aware of it which means you have to have a regenerated heart. And we also need the regenerated heart to recognize our need for a Savior in response to our sinfulness. And we need the Spirit to regenerate our hearts in order for us to respond to the gospel with joy. And Titus 3.5 tells us that it is the Spirit who does this regenerative regenerative work in us and for us. He says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Now listen, well, we all know that salvation isn't by works. We know it's by grace and not by works. If your salvation is dependent on you choosing him and not him choosing you, like Jesus says to his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. If our salvation is dependent on us choosing him, not him choosing us, then that is what we call work. And then you get at least a sliver. I mean, you could say, well, I chose him. I mean, he did 99% of the work. I just did the 1%. I chose him. God's like, that's not good enough. Because he says, my glory, I will share with how many people? No one. Parentheses, except for those whom I've chosen in Christ and will share my glory with them in eternity. Which is a different idea from a different text. But the idea is that that God can't share his glory with someone else because the whole reason for saving us, for giving us the gift of faith by grace is that he would get all the glory so that we can't boast. So he saves us not because of works done by us in righteousness because if you choose Jesus, that is righteousness. If you believe the gospel, that's righteous. Why is it righteous? Because the gospel is a command from Jesus, from Paul, from Peter, from John, from God. Believe in the Son of God for your salvation. Believe in Christ, repent of your sin, turn and be saved. That is the gospel message. If you believe that, your belief, your choice to believe is righteousness. But it says you're not saved by works of righteousness. How are we saved then? But according to his own mercy. Romans 9 phrases it like this. God has mercy on whom he wills. Period. And the Romans go, well, that's not fair. And Paul goes, you don't even get to ask that question or make that statement that it's not fair. God can do whatever he wants. That's Paul's argument in Romans 9. You don't get to, have, you don't get to question him. He gets to do whatever he wants. You're the clay, he's the potter. We're literally made out of dirt. We were made from dirt, guys. Dirt! And look at us. 
literally got like bones, flesh, muscles, blood flowing through our body, brains that can conceive of incredible realities. We're very intelligent. We're very functional. We're incredible specimens. We're the most intricate, amazing things that God ever created in the entire universe. And we were made from dirt. <laughs> like, there is this balance in our reality that we are this incredible feature of God's creation, and yet we come from the lowest form of, rea- of, of existence, of creation. That keeps us balanced in the middle. I'm not garbage, I'm not worthless, but I'm not as great as I think I am. I am made in the image of God. And... Who are we, dirt, to say to the potter, why have you made me this way? That's the question that the Romans ask, and Paul's answer is, because God chose to make you for one purpose and make this person for another purpose. Proverbs 30, verse 5, God made, God made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of destruction. God has made whom he's made for whatever purposes he has made them for, And as people say, that's not fair, God says, you know what's fair? You want fairness? Everybody goes to hell. There. Fair. So what is seemingly unfair is actually grace and mercy. And so he saves us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, the Holy Spirit does this, by washing, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's our justification. The Spirit enters into us. God puts His Spirit into us. Ezekiel 36, 27. Puts His Spirit into us, regenerates our hearts, and renews who we are. So, understanding God's sovereignty in our salvation is massively significant because it puts us in our place. It humbles us. And we need that. And if you think you don't need it, then you really need it. (laughs) Right? You all need it. I need it. I need it all the time. I was sitting in my office this morning thinking about this sermon going, oh, I need to be humbled, God. And I need humility to say things that I'd rather not say. You want me to say them? I'm going to say them. I'm going to trust you. You want us to follow you, Jesus? You want us to obey you? We have to trust you. That takes humility because on my own, I got a lot of great ideas on how my life should go and how I should live. I personally think it'd be great if I were rich. That's just my opinion. I think I should have tons of money, a bigger house, more stuff, perfect children. What else do I want? A nicer car? Don't you want a nicer car? A house on the lake, a second house on the lake. That's what I want. I have my, oh, golf, lots of golf. Yeah, I want you guys to be like, Mark, we really think you should golf every day just for your, the sake of your spiritual well-being. And I'd go, I agree, guys, this is good. I like, I like where this church is going. Okay, that's what my flesh wants. My flesh wants all this stuff. And maybe not stuff, maybe for you it's not stuff. Maybe, maybe it's just, I want recognition. I want to be famous. I want to be whatever, I don't know, whatever you want. Our flesh wants these things, and God's like, that's not my will for your life, and ultimately, that's not what I want for you. And it takes humility for us to come down off of our flesh and say, I don't want what I want, I want what you want. 
And we need to understand God's sovereignty more and more and more to really start to grasp the infinite nature and his will. And we need to be humbled under God's sovereignty so that we would work with God, with him, participating willfully with him as we continue to practice in our own will, putting off the old self and putting on the new self. Meaning, in order to properly understand our responsibility, our human responsibility to God's word, we must first understand God's sovereignty. And additionally, understanding God's sovereignty in our justification is important because in verse 10, Paul says that what the new self does is it becomes renewed or it grows in knowledge. And there is nothing worth knowing more than who God is, what he's like, what he does, and what he has done. So part of the growth of the new self that we are in Christ is that we grow in understanding God's absolute sovereignty, not just over our salvation, but over all of existence. Now, in Colossians 3, 9 through 10, Paul gives us, these two selves, right? We see how this is incorporated into, the God, into sovereignty. We've got these two selves, and each self has a qualifying statement that goes with it. The qualifier of putting off the old self is that we also put away the practices that are attributed to the old self. And then this qualifying statement that goes with the putting on of the new self is that the new self is constantly being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So these qualifiers do not achieve salvation, right? You cannot just do the qualifying statements and then you get saved. You can't just put away the practices of the flesh and then poof, the old self goes away and you're saved. You can't just open your Bible and learn about God and then poof, you get this new self and you're saved. Rather, these qualifying statements reveal to us the product of what happens when the Holy Spirit takes off the old self and puts on the new self. Putting off the practices of the old self and putting on the knowledge of God are products, the result of the Spirit's work to put sin to death. So the Spirit puts your sin to death. He applies Christ's work. Christ dies on the cross for your sins and puts your sin to death. That's a reality that happened long before you were born. And then you were born in sin without the death of sin applied to you. And once you believe in Christ, the Spirit has applied the death of sin to you. And so, putting off the flesh and its practices and putting on Christ and the knowledge of God are products of the Spirit's work to put off your old self and put on your new self in Christ. So as much as God commands that we put sin to death and that we put off the old self and put on the new self, these are just our expressions of faithfulness to Him 
that we can only do once he has done the regenerative work in us by the Spirit through the gospel of Jesus. The point is, it's the same point that Jesus makes in John 10, 27. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. If we were not regenerated by the Spirit, then Jesus' command to believe the gospel or any command in the Bible, such as to put off the old self and put on the new self, would be impossible for us to obey because we would not be sheep and we would not know the Savior's voice. So when you hear the gospel preached, are you a sheep? No. So how do you hear the Savior's voice calling you to believe? You can't. You can't believe the gospel. You can't believe the gospel. You're not a sheep. You don't know the shepherd's voice. You're not saved. You need something or someone to flip the switch for you so that you are a sheep who can hear the Savior's voice and the Savior says, follow me. Therefore, our ability and our willingness to hear his word and obey it and to put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self with the renewal of knowledge is only our follow-through and our participation with God that is enabled in us only by the power and work of the Holy Spirit to first regenerate our hearts and justify us before God and then according to Ezekiel 36, 27, cause us to obey by sanctifying us throughout the Christian life. So, to no longer practice sin and to grow in the knowledge of God, which is our constant pursuit in our Christian life, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, from our perspective, from our experience, It's our choice. I mean, I can't deny, and you can't deny, that everything you experience in life is choice. You make tons of choices every day. I've said this before. You make like, I don't know, like 50,000 choices a day. How many little micro, subconscious sub-choices you're making all the time? You know, every muscle that moves as I'm standing here, every sway, every movement of my hand, every synapse that's firing every nerve, is all just choices, 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 constantly making choices. And then we make bigger choices like where are we going to go to eat for lunch today or where are we going to live, you know, bigger choices. But our life every day is filled with thousands of choices. We experience making choices. And you, when you believed in the gospel, you made a choice. You chose Christ. And that choice is real. So that's an argument I often hear. Well, I know I chose him. And I agree, you did choose him. But Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. You, and, and, then, and then Jesus also says, what does Jesus say? <laughs> I just forgot the wording, that's all. We love him because he first loved us. Right? So the only reason we love him is because he first loved us. 
And so his love comes to us and then our being loved by Christ, our response is to choose him, to love him back. Meaning the only way we can love him back is if he first chooses to love us. And so, it is a real choice that you're making. But even that choice is the product of the Holy Spirit regenerating your heart. And though that choice is yours, and it's your will, that's your experience, that's how we all experience, it's your will whether you believe him or not, whether you trust Jesus or not, whether you believe in the gospel or not, you've experienced that as your choice. But part of the Spirit's miraculous work to regenerate our hearts in putting on the new self is that he also imparts to us a new will. You don't just get saved. You get everything. You get everything. Everything. Like I just said, God will not give his glory to another. Parentheses, caveat, except for those whom he's chosen to love and destined for eternal life and the fullness of his glory in eternity. Okay, we get everything. We get the fullness of God's glory. We get eternal life. We get salvation. We get death to our sin. We get obedience. We get righteousness. We get a hatred for sin. We get a church. We get the church. We get the word of God. We get the Holy Spirit who teaches us the word of God. We get love and peace and joy and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. We get everything. We get the, the fruit of the Spirit. We get the work of the Spirit. We get the power of the Spirit. We get the miraculous, overwhelming, unbelievable trust in God that the Spirit puts in us. We get confidence in the Word of God. We get belief. We get faithfulness. We get, I could go on and on. We get everything that God has to offer. We get it all when we get the Spirit. And it doesn't exclude your will. It includes your will. You have a will. Now, I would define that will as not being free, and I'll explain that right here in a minute. But that will is not free, but it is yours. But what happens is when the Spirit does regenerative work in your heart before you choose Christ, but regenerates your heart because you're elect, Ephesians 1, and then brings you to life, you not only get a new heart, you get a new mind and a new will and you become like Christ. And God looks at you and he says, I no longer see a dead sinner destined for eternal separation from me. But what I see is the righteousness of my son, Jesus Christ, covered over this person whom I love through my son. I see perfection. I see righteousness. We're no longer called sinners. We're called saints Holy ones, we're called brothers and sisters, we're called believers, we're called overcomers, we're called conquerors, we're called vic victorious, we're called in Christ, we're called the body, we're called the children of God. Those are wonderful things, that's how God sees you, that's a beautiful blessing. But with all that righteousness comes not only a new heart, not only a new mind, but a new will, which means new desires. And with that new will, once we're regenerated, we're regenerated at the moment that someone says, you need to believe in Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit regenerates your heart. And with a new heart, a new mind, and a new will, you say, yes, I do. Amen. And we believe. 
Now, in your experience, you're not like, oh, yeah, I could totally know what just happened. The Holy Spirit just filled me, regenerated my heart before I even chose him. So it's not really much. No one understands that depth of doctrine when you get saved. You just believe it. And, no, and salvation doesn't require that you understand this. Yeah, right? <laughs> Woo, thank you. Right? Because if you had to understand this to get saved, I don't know if we would be. Right? It's, it's too much. This is, this is for your sanctification. And so, so with the new will, we choose Christ. And that new will is massively important. Jesus said himself in John 5, 30, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If Christ, if God himself, if the Son of God submits his will to the Father's will, how much more ought we to submit our will to him? So even your choice to continue to obey God is the product and the work of the Holy Spirit who has not only regenerated your heart, but also regenerated your will. Think about that. If your argument is, no, it's my, still my choices, then I'd say, all right, well, then go murder somebody. You're a Christian, right? Go murder somebody. Well, I don't want to. Of course you don't want to. You have a new will. You know it's sin. Which is why when, you, when your flesh chooses to sin over your new will in Christ, that's why you get that icky feeling deep down in your stomach and in your heart. that You go, oh, that was wrong. Because you're acting in the flesh and it opposes the Holy Spirit who is your operator of your new will. And so you're grieving the Spirit because you're grieving the will of Christ that lives in you. That you want to do, but you don't because the flesh sometimes is victorious over your new will in Christ. And that's why when we do that, we get that ugh, feeling because the Spirit is saying, that's not your will anymore. And that's why you don't like it. That's that disruptive friction that you're feeling in that sin. It opposes God's will and it opposes your new will in Christ in you. So even our choice to continue to obey God is the product of the work of the Holy Spirit who has not only regenerated your heart, but also regenerated your will. And that is what makes the commands of Scripture effective for believers. Because believers hear Jesus' voice in the Bible and they hear the voice of their Savior and they want to obey. They want to follow. And so you do. And though that feels like your decision and your choice, it is only from the mind of Christ that he has put in you by the Spirit that you're able to do so. I mean, look at Ezekiel 36, 27, which is going to soon become our like mantra verse for this church because I use it like every other sermon, right? Because it's just so powerfully reveals that God never suggests or asks for your input on what he wants to do. He says, I will put. Not I will ask or I'll suggest or I'll maybe, you know, kind of get around to it eventually. Maybe, hey, do you want to uh, maybe believe um, in uh, the Son of God? Maybe, I don't know. Do you? <laughs> He's not asking. He puts, I will put. So this is Old Testament, but this is a text 
where uh, Ezekiel is, or God is talking and referring to the new covenant in Christ that will come. So he's kind of showing the old, in the Old Testament the beauty of the new covenant that we'll receive in Christ. So in Christ, he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause, cause you to obey my commands. So our follow-through then is like Christ's follow-through. With the Spirit putting and causing, we operate in the will of God just like Jesus did. Jesus operated in the will of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't tap into his deity to obey God. That's cheating. He did it in the flesh, in his humanity. He resisted every temptation. That's why he's able, Hebrews 4, that's why he's able to be your high priest. Because in his flesh, he resisted sin. And how does Jesus resist sin in the flesh? By the power of the Holy Spirit. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, I don't do my own will, I do the will of him who sent me. I don't do what I want to do. I see the Father. This is John chapter 5, 6, and 7. If you should, should have read them this week, right? 21 days of Jesus. All right, good. In John 5, 6, and 7, he says, I, I say 5, 6, and 7 because it's somewhere in there and I don't remember where. <laughs> he says in there, I only do what I see my father doing. I don't do anything other than what I see my father doing. I only say what my father says to say. I only feel what my father says to feel. I only operate according to my father's will. Not my will, but his will. Jesus, God himself, doesn't just say, I do what I want on my own authority. In fact, he says, I don't do anything on my own authority, but the Father gives me authority, so anything I'm doing is his authority given to me that I operate in his will. Which means the only way for us to operate according to God's will, to obey God or do anything good, is if the Holy Spirit, like with Christ, is operating through us and in us, and he is working through us and out of us the will of God. Which means that our objective in life should be to grow in the mind of Christ to know the will of God so to fulfill it. So, that does not remove human responsibility. That does not remove us from the responsibility to obey because The commands in Scripture are for us to follow obediently and faithfully. But without the Spirit's sovereign work to cause our obedience by installing a new will within us and Him operating that will, and we know He operates that will because Galatians 2.20 says, It is no longer I who live, but what? Christ who lives in me. That's a huge statement. You're not you anymore. The old you, the flesh is gone. You aren't you that's Christ in you. So the, and then he goes on to say, And the life I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So now I have a new life, Christ in me, who lives through me and out of me. It's not me anymore. It's not my will. It's not my flesh. It's not my mind. It's Christ's mind. It's Christ's heart. It's Christ's will. It's God's will. It's the word of God. And I can only do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is a complete removal of you. Without him operating that will, we would be incapable of obedience or doing anything from faith. Meaning, our pursuit of obedience and faithfulness to God 
If it's all God and all the Holy Spirit and all the work of God with all the commands that say do this and do this and do this and don't do that and don't do that and don't do that and don't do that, the only way we can obey those is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if we operate those things on our own, that's called legalism. Paul did that. Paul followed every single rule in the book. And you know what Paul said about all those rules without the Holy Spirit? What are they? Garbage. He said it was nothing without Christ. And then he says in Galatians 2.20, but now it's Christ who lives in me, not me, but Christ. So all my obedience is Christ. All my faithfulness is Christ. All my, all my work and will for God is Christ. Everything I do that is righteous is Christ. Every fruit of the Spirit that flows out of my life is Christ. Every word that I'm preaching you to right now is Christ, not me. And when it's me, you'll know. It won't be good. And maybe this isn't good, and it is me. I guess we'll see. Anyways, <laughs> that means that our pursuit of obedience and faithfulness removes from us, because it's all Christ, not us, it removes from us what? All boasting. All arrogance, and gives God all the glory, because Ephesians 2, 8-9 through 9 says, this was not your own doing. Why? So that no one may boast. And Ephesians 2, 8 says, it is the gift of God. So though we have a will and we exercise that will and what we experience as free, we call it a free will, the Bible paints a different picture of freedom of the will as the will, your will, is never free. Never. You never have had a free will and you never will have a free will. You will never, ever have a will that is free from slavery. You are always a slave. Your will is constantly enslaved to something. And Jesus says, your will is either the will of Satan, John 8, 44, or your will is to do the will of the Father, John 5, 30. Meaning, your will is either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. That's what uh, Paul says in Romans 6, 16. I'm going to read it because you don't believe me. Romans 6, 16. I mean, I, I, I assume you believe me. I'm going to read it anyways. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching from which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Either way, your will is never free. It is always a slave, either a slave to sin or slave to Christ. And here is the power of the gospel. Though. This is the beautiful power of the gospel, that though we are slaves to Christ and God calls us as slaves, he also calls this slavery to Christ freedom in Christ. And why is it freedom? Because we're not slaves to sin. If you're an unbeliever, you have one choice and one choice only. Sin. Anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. So, that's Romans 14. You, you can only sin. So, an unbeliever who gives all their money to homeless shelters and charities and they love people and they're philanthropists and they're wonderful people. And, oh, what a good guy still goes to hell without Christ. It's still sin. 
We might call it good, but God's standard of good is perfection in Christ. So, freedom in Christ is when we get moved from I can only do sin to this camp over here where, well, I can still run back to my flesh and do sin, but I'm freed from it. It doesn't enslave me. It's not my master. I don't have to sin. Christ is my new master. Galatians 2.20, not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now the life that I live, I can live by faith in Christ. I am free from sin in Christ. And therefore a slave to my master Christ, who is the best master you can have. Sin, sin. Okay, Christ as your master leads to what? Eternal life in the presence of God the Father, where there is eternal joy and happiness forever. If sin is your master, where does that lead? Death. 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah, Jesus is a better master. And being a slave to him is just fine with me because it leads to everything I want. So what does this actually look like in our lives? God is sovereignly orchestrating our obedience to remove the flesh and walk in the spirit Yet, with a new heart and a new mind, a new will, we are not relieved from our human responsibility to follow him and obey, but we can do so with a new will in Christ. So then, what does it look like in my life to put away the old self with its practices and put on the new self and renew it with knowledge? What does that look like? It looks like Christ. It looks like Jesus. In verse 10, Paul says, that our new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So we may tend to think of the Father when we see the words image of the creator. We think, oh, we're made in the image of God and God's a creator, so we think of God the Father. But earlier in Colossians 1.15, Paul said of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, for by him all things were created and all things were created through him and for him. So Christ is the image of God and Christ is the creator, meaning the new self is transformed into the image and likeness of Christ and the way in which that is done is through the renewal of our minds or our growth in knowledge. Christianity is not a feelings-based belief. It is a knowledge-based belief. Faith comes from the mind. Faith is not an emotion. Faith produces emotions. Faith is a belief. It is a state of mind that is put into us by the Spirit as a means for us to continue to grow in knowledge that transforms our minds to be like the mind of Christ, which completely and totally dictates how we live our lives. So if the aim of putting off the old self is to remove the many sins that Paul lists in these previous verses, and if the aim of putting on the new self is to be renewed in the image of Christ, then we should make it our aim, and we should make it our goal, and we should make it our purpose and our drive and our desire and our passion to grow in the knowledge of God and grow into the mind of Christ so that we would then, from Christ's mind that operates us, obey him and please him, and thus we would be satisfied in him and filled with joy, which then becomes our strength to continue forward in more obedience. And if in Christ and by the Spirit we also have a new will, and that will is operated by the Spirit who always seeks to honor God, 
then obedience to God and the desire to kill your sin should not be a burden, but it should be an incredible joy. Because that's your new will in the mind of Christ, that you hate sin and love righteousness. Now, let me make this real practical before we end. You want to know what really comes to life with the sovereignty of God? Prayer. Because if you're thinking, God does it all, what's the point of praying? What's the point of even evangelizing? Why share the gospel with people at all if they're elected and God just chooses to save them? Why even pray if God's just going to do what he does? Why, is it even, why, why do I even do anything? Why just sit here, I'm a robot, and God just make me do what I'm going to do, and he'll just move me however he moves me. Because God is not just sovereign over the ends. We're thinking, well, God is sovereign over what happens here. God is sovereign at the beginning and in the middle. God is sovereign over the means that he uses to accomplish the end. And if the end is, if at the beginning it is you are elect and chosen and the end is the moment I save you, then he also operates and sovereignly orchestrates the means that gets you there. Why share the gospel? Because you're commanded to share the gospel. And though God may have elect people whom he calls to himself, he will call them through your obedience to share the gospel. He has also ordained your being, you being the means to share the gospel so that they would believe. Which means your prayers are also part of God's sovereign work. Why pray if God is going to do it all himself? Because God not only ordains what happens at the end of your prayer, but he ordains that you prayed. And he ordains what you pray. And if you're thinking to yourself, does that also mean that he ordains evil? Well, I'm not going to answer that right now. You have to come to women's Bible study to get that answer. Okay? So, the whole point here is that I'm telling you that the real practical application here, your prayer life is huge. Oh, you better be praying. Oh my goodness, you guys, we ought to be praying and praying and praying. If the Spirit is the one who does the work and Scripture commands us to depend on Him, then our prayers are the means by which God causes your obedience and causes things to happen. Prayer works. Prayer works even better when you have a sovereign God in mind. That this God, that my prayers are not just what I want, but as God turns me into the image of Christ, He transforms the way that I think, which is why in 1 John 5 He says, if you ask anything according to my will, you get it. Meaning you have to know His will. Which means you've got to be in the word and in prayer to absorb and to know and understand what is the will of God in my life. What is the will of God in Grace Church? What is the will of God in the town of Osceola? What is the will of God in America? What is the will of God in my children? What is the will of God in my wife or my husband? What is the will of God in my life group or my Bible study? What is the will of God on Sunday morning? Lon has to ask himself, what is the will of God in our music ministry? You have to ask yourself, what is the will of God in my life at this church? Am I supposed to help a kid town or kingdom kids? What am I supposed to do? What's my role? How can I help the church? How can I serve? What is God's will for my life? Well, if you're never in the word and you're not praying, how could you know? And so what do people who don't do those things do? Nothing. Or they do something, but it's not moved by the Spirit. It doesn't, Romans 14, 23, proceed from faith and is therefore sin. So we got to be a a body that is filled with Christ by being in the word and being in prayer. And the more we trust the sovereign God, the more prayer makes sense and the more God starts to satisfy our desires and fulfill what he wants done in this church and in your life. Let's pray. 
Father, with incredible, incredible patience, you have poured it all over this congregation. This morning you have poured your patience into your people to endure a message that is harder to maybe believe and also longer to hear but necessary for our souls to grow. And so you have beautifully orchestrated a Sunday morning service that we just pray and hope and ask is for your glory. That it is your word that they hear. Your word that I hear. Your word that we hear. Because only your word returns not void. Only your word does what you send it to do. And so I pray that your people would receive the truth of this gospel reality and believe and obey and submit to your sovereignty. And that as we grow in that understanding, we would grow in our joy in you as we pursue righteousness in Christ. So fill us with your spirit to cause these things to happen for our joy and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.